Lord Jesus. I love that song. Uh, it's, it's upbeat and it's a fun song to sing, but that, God, I love that song because it continually proclaiming, I have hope because you're alive. My hope is found in you and you're not dead in a grave somewhere. You're not just some historic figure. You're not a figment of my imagination, but you are alive and breathing and ruling today. And because of that, I have hope. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the hope that you give, for the hope that it's not even something you lob in from a distance. When you're present, hope abounds. So God, I pray that you would be present with us today and that hope would abound in our midst, that we would be reminded even in the darkest of days that we have hope because our King sits on the throne and nothing is out of your grasp. So Lord Jesus, I pray, be present today. Speak to the hearts of your people. I pray that you would begin transformation today that would carry on for the rest of our lives. Walk with us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. The password is... Um, so we've been working through Mark chapter 12. And last week we looked at two interactions uh, that Jesus had with a group of people, actually two different groups of people. And we said we were going we're to take two weeks and look at these passages. Last week we were looking at it from the perspective of who was asking Jesus questions and why. And this week we're going to get to Jesus' actual responses, the teachings uh, of Jesus. But just a little bit of recapping. Um, from last week. I actually had more conversations with people about last week's message than any message in recent memory, so uh, hit a nerve, apparently, with that one. But what we found is there was these groups of people, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who we're going to read them again today, who were coming to Jesus to try to trap him in his words. They were coming and they were trying to ask him questions that either made him look foolish and he would lose faith with the people, or they were asking very divisive questions, trying to divide the people. Because it said that they wanted to arrest and kill Jesus, and the only thing stopping them was their fear of the people. And so they got together in this big group, and they went, how do we get him? We have to divide the people. If we can take away his support, we can get him. And so they come, and they ask these incredibly divisive questions, not because they're seeking answers, but because they're trying to put Jesus at odds with the people. As we looked at it, Jesus is not happy with them. Jesus doesn't just go, man, great question. Thanks for asking it. He goes, aware of their hypocrisy, it says. He says, why are you testing me? He knows, the jig is up. He knows what they're about. These were the leaders of Israel, the people that God had called to lead Israel toward him. A unified people, they could really say one nation under God because they were a nation that God had founded and they were called to live unified as the people of God. And here are their leaders going, let's divide them because it's good for us. Jesus saw this ugliness, this hypocrisy, and it infuriated him. Their entire strategy was divide and conquer. Divide the people to conquer Jesus. Jesus. 
look, these people are looking for reasons to be divided anyway. We already know where those hairline fractures are. Let's just drive a deeper wedge because it's gonna, Jesus is gonna have to give an answer and some people are gonna go, well, if he says that, I'm out. And so the leaders of the people were looking for ways to divide the very people they had been called to lead. And it infuriated Jesus. The leaders had this in mind and many today still have this in mind. The more divided people become, the more afraid they are of those on the other side and the more power and authority they'll give me. The more I can make people pick a side, pick one of these polar extremes, naturally the more fearful they're gonna be of those on the other side and the more afraid they are of them. The more donations I get, the more votes I get, the more support I get, the more authority they will willingly hand over. Because if you can protect me from those people, go ahead and lead. It's a, it's a very natural and sinful human thing that the leaders back then were exposing and that many today are exposing as well. The more afraid I can get you, the more you will give me. Willingly, joyfully, you'll thank me as you give me your money and your authority because I'll protect you from the boogeyman on the other side. This was, that's basically their strategy. And they were using these questions to try to drive that divide even deeper. The way Jesus looked at the crowd was incredibly different. We're gonna look real quick at John chapter 17, a couple passages there. This is what was, what's often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's the last like public prayer that Jesus had before going to the cross. And so he's surrounded by all of his disciples and and he, he's praying for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he kind of keeps widening the net. And in verse 20, here's how he prays. I pray not only for these, his disciples, those that were listening, but also for those who believe in me through their message. Did you know you were in the Bible? You made it, well done. Not for any big feats and accomplishments that you would do, but because Jesus was looking down through time at us and everyone in between, and everyone that will come after, and praying specifically, Lord, not just for those that are hearing me right now, but even those that are gonna come to believe because their message, even generations from now, here is my prayer for those who follow me. May they also be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be one in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me. Think about that for a second. Jesus says, I've given my people the glory that the Father gave to me. That'll bake your noodle if you spend some time on it. May they be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they be made completely one. So the world will know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus would sacrifice everything so that we could be made into one people. So that we could not only be adopted into the family of God like individually, but so that we could lock arms as the family of God and be, as he says, completely one. And we go, man, what does that even look like? Or whatever. He takes it to a higher level, to one that's even hard to get your head around because he goes, just as me and the Father are one, I want you to be one 
with one another. Jesus is saying, look, it's not just about you pursuing me and you and me being good. Certainly, I and you and you and me, but also that you would be one with each other. Just as me and the Father are one, that me and Steve would be one. That is the highest degree of unity I can think of, but let's just stop and take a minute here. As he and the Father are one, let me ask you something. Anyone in here fully understand the Trinity? Good, I didn't want to have to call you a liar. Anyone who says, oh, that Trinity thing, I got it, no problem, they're lying. It is so far beyond anything that we can imagine. There is nothing in, in nature that we can point to and go, yeah, it's just like that. It's completely inseparable, but it's distinctly three different things at the same time. It, but Jesus is going, just as me and the Father are one, we are unique. We have distinct personalities. Their, their voices may have sounded different. I mean, I, who knows? But just as we are distinctly different, we are also united together in a way that's inseparable. We are one being. Kind of like Paul says, we're one body, one church, one faith. Not vanilla, not we're all cookie cutter and everything is uniformity. There might as well not even be a difference between me and Garrett. We're basically the same person. That's not what we're called to. Uniquely different flavors, but all the same thing. This is the unity that God is calling us to. And this is the unity that the leaders of Israel were undermining. That's what they were willing to sacrifice to keep their own power and authority, their own money, their own popularity, they were willing to sacrifice the very thing that Jesus said, I'm going to do the cross for. So that you can not only have the closest relationship imaginable with me and the Father, but even with each other. And this was getting thrown under the bus by the religious leaders. And I think it infuriated Jesus. This is not why God has placed you in a role of leadership. You're missing it. So they come with these divisive questions intending divide and conquer. And let's look at now at how Jesus responds to them. Let's look at the actual teachings of Jesus in these two passages. So Mark chapter 12 is where we are. If you want to turn there, they'll be up on the wall as well. Starting in verse 13 through 17. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him to trap him by what he said. When they came, they said, teacher, listen to that. They were smooth talkers. We know that you're truthful and that you defer to no one, for you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Liars. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or should we not pay? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So they brought one. Whose image and inscription is this, he asked them. Caesar's, they said. Then Jesus told them, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they were amazed at him. They were trying to divide the people by asking Jesus if it was right to pay taxes to an occupying nation. Is it right? I mean, because we're Israel, we're God's people. Basically what they were saying is, is it right to just kind of roll over or should we rebel? Wouldn't God want us to rebel, Jesus? Isn't it wrong to, by paying taxes, 
to admit that Rome is actually over us? Should we just roll over or should we rebel? These were kind of the, the polar opposites, the two factions that were at work. And then, like now, it was really unpopular to be anywhere in the middle. You had to pick one. Either you're basically just a Roman, even though you're Jewish, and we kind of like treat you like an outsider, or like weekly, there was rebellions rising up. People were constantly being arrested for this. It's the reason why there were so many soldiers in Rome is because the Jewish people were known for constantly rebelling and rising up. And so they're bringing this really divisive issue to Jesus and they're going, look, so do we just lay down or do we stand up and fight? Pick one. And so Jesus answers them, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And I, I wanna ask you here this morning, this is one of those times when we talk, what does it mean to give to Caesar what was Caesar's? What, what was owed to Caesar? What, what is Jesus actually instructing them in? Because this gets quoted all the time to simply mean pay your taxes. Which, does it mean pay your taxes? Yes. Is that all it means? Just write the check and outside of that, who cares? What did it mean to give to Caesar what was Caesar's? Okay, what else? What, what was Jesus calling them? What was owed to Caesar? Maverick, do you have an idea? Okay, yeah, so to not rob Caesar. Like, here's the thing. They, as much as they would have hated to admit it, they were actually afforded some things by having Rome over top of them as well. There was now this new global commerce that hadn't really been seen before, and in some ways they were benefiting. There was a lot of ways they weren't. I'm not trying to paint a, a pretty picture of being occupied by Rome, but there were some ways that they were benefiting as well, and taxes went towards some of that. In a, it's a weird thing. What else? Is this just a money thing? Agreed, no. <laughs> Someone over here? Yeah. Yeah. To pay taxes to a government is to recognize that government's authority. Colin? That sounds familiar. I think we have it on the wall. Absolutely. The, the a teaching that would come later through Paul, again, Paul, Paul clarifying to the Jews the same thing because in Paul's ministry, Rome was still the top dog. And Paul teaching that same thing. I'm, I'm going to read it here, uh, different translation, but, but same exact meeting. 
Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those who exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. Every authority that exists is because God created it. Wait, 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 you mean even the unfair ones? God allows them to be in charge even though I don't think they're fair, even though I disagree with their policies, even though uh, they take advantage. We're still supposed to respect their authority? Yes. Why? Because God is the ultimate authority. And to rebel against even earthly authority is to rebel against God's authority. Why was Rome in charge of Israel. Think of the Old Testament. You can pick a number of stories. Every time Israel was overtaken by a foreign nation, why? This is where you actually share, if you know it. They would rebel against God, and then God would send a foreign nation to overtake them as a way to show them, you're not in charge. I am. He would warn them it was coming, and then he would bring that nation against them, and then he would restore the people back. And they'd be good for a generation or so, and then they'd get thinking, we're top dog. We don't need God anymore. We don't need to respect his authority. We'll do it our way. And he would say, stop it. He'd send prophets to them, quit it. You know what happens at the end of this, don't do it. And they'd continue on, and he'd bring another nation, and they would be overtaken and sometimes even carried off out of Israel into foreign lands because they were rebelling against God. And so now they see Rome in place, and instead of saying this, like Rome is actually in charge because we've been rebellious to God, they went, God, it's unfair. Let's fight against Rome so that we can be everything we've, we want to be. Instead of going, God, we're here because we've rebelled against you. You are using this to try to change our hearts, just like you did in Babylon and before. But they would fight against God. And actually, if you look at how God called the people of Israel in the Old Testament to rebel, it was never the way that we think it is. You won't find a place that I'm aware of, unless I'm wrong, and if so, come talk to me afterwards, where God called the people of Israel, I have brought... um, the Babylonians in over top of you, fight against them real hard. You won't find it. What you will find is I'm bringing them, go with them and actually seek the peace of the city. While you are under their control, seek what's best for them because I've brought this all anyway. And so you have some people like, let's look at Daniel who rebelled. First Daniel is taken uh, captive and they bring him into this new country and they see something in him. He's a smart guy and they go, we're gonna turn him in to one of our leaders. And so they take him to this special school where they're basically making him Babylonian and they teach him language and all of this stuff and they want him to eat this meat that's been sacrificed to some places that he's not too sure about and he says, I can't do that. To eat that meat would actually be sinning against God and so he takes up his sword and he goes and he fights him. Is that how the story goes? No. He actually goes to the one who's over him and he says, this would be sin for me to do. Can I instead just eat vegetables? And the guy's like, man, if you start looking bad, it's actually my head, like I'm in trouble. But it says God gave him favor with him. And so he said, let's try it for a week and let's see what happens. Comes back at the end of the week and Daniel actually looks healthier than everybody that's been eating all the meat. 
And he goes, man, continue on. Daniel didn't stand up in defiance and how dare you. He actually went to them and said, this would be putting me uh, at odds with my God and I can't do that. And I'm actually notifying you. I'm not going to be following your law. Can we do something else instead? A little bit later, Daniel uh, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you guys have heard this story before, it's one of my favorites. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, creates this enormous statue to himself, and he says, every single person is going to bow and worship. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego gather an army, and they get their swords, and they go and they attack Nebuchadnezzar. No. They go to the king, and they say, we're not going to bow. Even if you throw us into the fiery furnace, our faith is in our God, and and we're not going to do it. There's not this kind of rebellion that we think of like Israel was known for under Rome. What there was was a going to those that were in authority and saying, what you're doing is asking me to turn my back on my God and I won't do it. Whatever penalty you hand down, I'll willingly accept. But I'm not going to rebel against my God. It wasn't the kind of rebellion we think of. And so this was, a, this was not a God-ordained fight against the Romans thing. Instead, what we find again through Paul and as Jesus is saying, everyone on authority over you has been put there by God, whether you understand it or not. Respect those in authority. Pay your taxes, whether you voted for this party or that party or whatever, because ultimately to respect your earthly authority is to respect his authority. Yeah? Okay. So Jesus doesn't stop there. Give to Caesars what is Caesars. And then he goes on to say, and give to God the things that are God's. What is God's? What, what does it mean to give to God the things that belong to him? Maverick. What do you mean? Peace? Okay, to, to basically to respect what God tells us to do. He tells us to have peace with other people. And so to live in God's way, to follow God's way is something that he commands of us and we owe him. Okay? What does it mean, give to God what is God's? Because let me tell you, this answer amazed the crowd. They took a step back going, whoa. I think they understood something we don't. What does it mean to give to God the things that are God's? What is his? What belongs to him? Everything. Thank you. Now that we have that answer out of the way, everything belongs to him, let's kind of just list out what is some of everything. What is it that we owe to him? Worship and honor. Our days, our time. Okay, so a a very on-the-surface reading of this, what most people take is Jesus saying, okay, so pay taxes to Caesar and give God tithes and offerings, which is true, absolutely, but what we're looking at is so much deeper. The honor, the worship, giving him our, our days, our time. What else? Our priorities, allowing the Lord to order our steps and order our days. Yes. It's, it's not ours 
Man, to think about that. God calls us to give generously to, to the church, to his kingdom. And he says, with joy in our hearts. I think, kind of like what Tim was saying, are we called to pay our taxes in the same way? With joy in our hearts? Because, I'm, yes, this check is getting written to a government, but it's because my, it's all my God's anyway. And he's called me to respect these people and to give to them what is due them. And so with joy, I pay my taxes. That doesn't sound very American. <laughs> but I think there's something to it. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So they brought him one. Whose image and inscription is this, they asked. Caesar's, they said. Put up the picture of a denarius. So this is what Roman money looked like. And it changed throughout the years depending on who uh, was Caesar. But you can kind of read there, Caesar Augustus had a, they didn't have stamps like we do. It was kind of crude looking, but a picture of Caesar and his name. And so here's how Jesus answered this question. Okay, look at your money. Whose face is on it? Whose image do you see? Caesar's. Then whose money is it actually? Caesar's, right? So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But then he, he, he throws on there and give to God what is God's. In the same way that a denarius belongs to Caesar because it bears his image, each of us belong to God because we bear his image. At your creation, when you were knit together in your mother's womb, God stamped his image on your soul. We're told in Genesis chapter 1 that we were created in the very image of God. You are his because you have been stamped with his image. You are his because he made you. You have his face and his inscription all over you. Now give to him what belongs to him, which is all of you. They were asking Jesus questions about money, trying to spark a rebellion. And Jesus went, let me take you one further. Give to Caesar the money. I'm not even worried about that. Give to God everything. Your entire life, because just as Caesar's face and inscription are on the denarius, God's image has been stamped on you. It's, it's a stamp of ownership. Again, it's, it's un-American. We don't like being owned. None of us created ourselves. We were minted by God himself with his image on us, and we owe him Everything our time, our money, our priorities, our obedience, our allegiance belongs to him. And yeah, along the way, give proper respect to those that he's placed in authority over you, but because you respect his authority, his stamp on your soul. The real issue at hand here was they were asking, can we really trust God even when we don't understand what he's doing? But the Romans are pagans. But, but they do things that you tell us not to do and they're cruel to us and we don't understand. Like they, This wasn't just them crying foul at some little incident. This would be terrible to truly live under. These were people who didn't understand why God would do this, but what many had done was then chucked their faith, chucked the way God had commanded them to live and said, then we'll take care of it ourselves. What was really being asked here is, can we really trust God even when we don't understand what he's doing? And there's an important principle um, found in the book Soul Care, which I, I keep 
quoting and recommending, and I can't recommend it highly enough. I don't get paid uh, if you go buy books. That's not what this is about. It's just a great discipleship tool. So if you're like, why does he keep talking about that book? I have copies I'd love to give you. Come and ask me. But here's a quote from the book that, that applies to this. And he says, there is no victory in rebellion. In a spiritual kingdom, there can be no victory through rebellion, only in submission to the king. They were asking Jesus, is it okay to rise up and rebel? And Jesus' answer to them was, no, instead submit to your true king. Live life humbly in the way that he's called you to live. And you'll find freedom like no overthrow of Rome could ever give you. No victory is found through rebellion, only through submission to the king. And I think that this is exactly what Jesus was calling them to. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's but recognize that all authority, all ownership belongs to God. And he demands your allegiance. So they kind of just walk away dizzied by what Jesus just did. He flipped the whole script on them and actually instead of dividing the crowd, the crowd is amazed and actually stepping towards Jesus. And so the Sadducees decide to step up and try their hand. So some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaves his wife behind and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise. So the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Since the seven had married her, Jesus told them, are you not deceived because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now concerning the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, you are badly deceived. So first, let's just start with something here. To our knowledge, this situation never happened. These seven brothers, one wife, one marries her, dies. The second brother marries her, dies. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, dies. No children to speak of. This was not a real life situation. This was a riddle, was all it was. I think that this was their big gun that they were bringing out for Jesus. This was the one that had stumped everybody else. I, I think the crowd started to hear this question and they went, oh, it's the seven brothers. No one's been able to answer this one yet. This has stumped everybody. And it was just this riddle they were bringing out because they didn't believe that there was a resurrection. This wasn't a Jesus, help us understand. This was a Jesus, help us show that everyone who believes that is stupid. Help us show the crowds just how dumb this whole idea of a resurrection is. One commentator says this, their question was absurd. It was, a, it was similar to asking how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or did Adam have a belly button? An absurd question isn't less absurd because we direct the question to God. They were asking what they knew was an absurd question. Not, uh, it had never happened before, but because they were again trying to twist and trap they were not coming in humility to learn. They were coming to divide and to conquer. 
You see, the Sadducees were, were as high class as any Israelite could get. They were the elites. They were the most well-to-do, financially stable, well-respected, well-educated group. People had heard them ask this question before. I don't have that in scripture. I can just imagine. If you've ever listened to a debate, you don't hear new questions. Everyone brings their best of. What are the things that no one's been able to answer yet? And I'm going to make this person look foolish. And that's what these guys did. They, they were bringing their best. And so you have these well-respected, highly educated men. What do you think the crowd thought when Jesus looked at them and said, are you not deceived? Because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. I think the crowd's like going, I'm sorry, what? These guys have memorized the entire Torah. What do you mean they don't know the scriptures? If they don't know the scriptures, who can, Jesus? It, these are our leaders. The, these are the ones who rule over Israel. If they don't know the power of God, and the crowd had to be like, what is he talking about? There's a lot of things you could accuse these guys of. Not knowing the scriptures? I don't think anyone had tried that one yet. And Jesus goes on, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So let's take a pause here and, and again, look at the actual teaching uh, of Jesus. Some would take this teaching uh, to say marriage doesn't exist in heaven. There have been recently really well-known pastors and authors that I like and respect that would say, according to this passage, marriage is done. Like, once you get to heaven, marriage doesn't exist anymore. I don't agree with that. Uh, for me, I'm just giving you my stance. This is one of those things that no matter what somebody gives you as an interpretation on this passage, you hold it open-handed. Because Jesus wasn't super clear. He didn't then go on to go, okay, here's exactly what that means. We're, we're interpreting. We're taking our educated guesses here. And so with passages like this, hold them open-handed. But I'm just going to give you where I stand. In many ways, heaven will be like going back to the beginning. Going back to the garden, the only difference is we're going urban. But the relationships, the, the complete harmony with God, with each other, and with his creation being restored. Heaven is the restoration of all things. Things how they were meant to be in the beginning, but we screwed it up with sin. And what do we have in the beginning? What's one of the first things that God, God does once he creates everything? He then takes Adam and they look around for, for a good partner for Adam and none of the animals will do. And he says, it's not good for you to be alone. So he creates a partner, a wife for Adam. And marriage begins. All marriage is tied back to in the garden before sin ever entered the world. And so it, it doesn't make sense to me that God would then go, yeah, 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 that's good for on earth, but once, once this is all done, I've done away with that. It, it doesn't add up to me. Again, and this is my interpretation. Hold it open-handedly. You may have a different one, and I'd actually love to talk with you about it. But the ending of this unique and incredible union doesn't add up to me. Uh, marriage is continually brought up in the New Testament as an illustration for the kind of relationship God desires to have with his people, the kind of relationship an individual is to have with their savior. And so to get to heaven where there's actually a marriage feast between the church and Jesus, and then go, but hey, the most unique and intimate relationships you had on earth, 
those don't count anymore. Marriage has always seemed to be this forever thing. Now, the, the question that they're asking is they're basically going, but tell me exactly how it works, Jesus. Because who gets it? First of all, Kim pointed out, like, this woman is not a prize to be gotten. It's, it's, she's very much property in this story. Who gets her? Which of the seven brothers wins the fight and gets the prize, this woman? Uh, I don't believe God views her as just something to be handed off. But they're looking at it and they're going, truly, we're confused. Everyone who's heard this before went, that's a good question, because, like, she did marry all seven of them. I, how, how is marriage going to work when, when heaven comes in, when there's this resurrection? It is a confusing thing. We're going to come back to that in a second. But I don't think Jesus was trying to give a clear theology on the deepest human relationship we have and its eternal state. This was not a half a sentence thing and move on. There, I nailed it. I don't think his point was to give this deep theology on it. I believe he was trying to point out how vastly different heaven and everything that comes with it will be from any earthly concept that we have. The way that you think about giving in marriage and being married, it's insufficient for heaven. It's going to be so perfect, you can't actually even grasp it right now. Whatever you think, whatever the best marriage relationship you can think of wouldn't cut the mustard in heaven. Whatever you are thinking about with this, he has something vastly superior planned. Any kind of marrying or giving in marriage that you can imagine falls short. The ideas of marriage that you have, heaven is going, isn't just going to be that, but a little bit better. It's going to be completely different in kind and in scope. There's a passage in Isaiah 55 where, where God is speaking to the people of Israel and he says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts nor my ways uh, and, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The, uh, we're told in Ephesians chapter three that God is able to do abundantly more than all we can ask or even imagine. The end of our imagination we haven't even reached the starting place of what God is trying to do yet. And yet here we are as mortal beings trying to go, some would go, I think I have it figured out what it's going to be like in heaven. Again, take a step back from anyone that says that because going, it would be a shadow. The best we can even think of would be a shadow compared to what God will do on that day. I think Jesus was trying to show just how out of their depth the Sadducees were. You think you have this whole thing figured out, cute little riddle. You don't understand the scriptures of the power of God. You haven't even begun to scratch the surface yet. So when Jesus, the thing he starts and ends, his thing on marriage, he says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. When he said, when they rise from the dead, he was actually confirming something the Sadducees hoped he never would have said. Remember, the Sadducees, the way that we remember this, they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in a resurrection, no miracles, no angels or demons, nothing supernatural. It was what I can see right in front of my face. Being Jewish to them was more a heritage, more about genealogy than it was interacting with God, than it was God moving on our behalf. 
He didn't do those kinds of things. If we couldn't see it, measure it, touch it, it didn't exist. And so for Jesus to come and say, when they rise from the dead, they would have gone, wait, you actually believe in this resurrection thing? And they'll be like the angels. They would have gone, wait, 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 Jesus, we don't believe in angels. I think a lot of people in the crowd probably had their hand up at the time going, uh, excuse me, Jesus, we don't know any angels. That's actually not at all helpful to us to tell us that marriage will be like angels. I've never met one. Like Samuel, have you met one? Never met one. They're mentioned in the Bible, but like we're not told what angels are like. Jesus was not trying to give a clear picture. He was trying to stick it to the Sadducees a little bit and go, you don't understand the scriptures of the power of God because the resurrection, the thing that you think is foolish, oh, it's coming. The angels, the things that you think don't exist, we're actually gonna be made like them. You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. You have ignored the parts of scripture that don't suit you and you have denied the power of God because it was uncomfortable, because you didn't like it, because you couldn't see it, taste it, touch it. You said, well, then it must not be. So Jesus goes on with them, uh, 26 and 27. Now concerning the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. You are badly deceived. Again, they, they fully accepted their heritage as we are sons of Abraham, but they thought Abraham was just some long dead great, 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 and on grandpa. And going, God does not play like that. He is not the God of the dead. He doesn't list genealogies of just dead and gone people. He is alive and well, and he is still the God of his people because there is a resurrection. He's not some dead God put on a dusty shelf and those that walk with him don't just get put in the ground and turned to dust. He is alive and well and those that follow him are resurrected to live just like he is. You are badly deceived. Again, they had this thinking that is prevalent in our culture too. If I can't see it, touch it, understand it, it can't be true. Many of us approach our faith in the same way. If I haven't seen it before, it must not be true. If I haven't experienced it before, it can't be true. If I can't understand it, it can't be true. As if our infantile little minds could ever grasp what is God's. The things that God is doing, what God has prepared for us. God does promise, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, that as we walk with him, he will begin to reveal his will to us He'll let us in on what he's doing. But even then, if you expect A to Z, the full plan, and you can understand it fully, you're kidding yourself. Can he be trusted even if we don't understand? Can he be trusted even when we don't understand what he's doing? Rome, really? Over top of us and pay taxes to them? Really? Can he be trusted? Can he be trusted even when we can't see it yet? A resurrection? I've never been resurrected. Again, Samuel, have you ever been resurrected? Not yet. He says that it'll happen. I've never seen it. I've never experienced it. Can he be trusted? Can God really be ushering in this new kingdom? Even when I look around and all I see is Roman soldiers. Can he really be trusted? 
Can I trust that he will provide even when the bank account is that empty? Can I trust that he will really bring peace even into my broken situation? Can he be trusted even when the day looks dark and Rome is in charge? Even when I've never seen a resurrection, I haven't seen a miracle, I haven't seen an angel, but he says they're true. He says they're waiting for me. Can he really be trusted? These were the questions they were asking. This was not about whose wife will she be or is it okay to give Caesar some money? The questions they were asking, can God really be trusted with what matters most to me? Maybe this isn't what the Sadducees and the Pharisees were intending, but this is what the people would have heard. This is why the people were waiting to pick sides and whatever, because they were asking these questions. Can God really be trusted with Rome? Can he really be trusted with my future, even if I can't see it yet? And Jesus comes and says, man, to doubt that is to misunderstand the scriptures and to deny the power of God. He can be trusted. Will we trust him? Lord Jesus, we can know the answer is yes. We could get it right on a test. Yes, God can be trusted. But when we're being tested, when we're in that dark place and we can't see a way out, uh, when we're suffering loss, when we have questions about, but how am I going to make it through tomorrow? But where is the money going to come from? Is God really good even in this situation? It's a lot harder. This is not just a head knowledge thing. This is a walking out our faith. Can you truly be trusted? God, I believe wholeheartedly with everything in me that when we take that step, when we say yes and put our trust in you, you will show yourself faithful. May we not fall into the trap of trying to force you to be faithful before we ever take the step. May we put our faith into action, God trusting that you are good, trusting that you have our best in mind, trusting that you are still strong and moving and we can follow wherever you lead, trusting that you will catch us if we fall. You'll get us back on the right path if we take a wrong step, trusting that you will be a good father and walk with us through whatever comes. You are king. You are seated on the throne. You are all powerful. You are able to do abundantly more than I can ask or even imagine. I believe it. May I live my life trusting it. Would you just impress this on us, God? We all have our own unique situations, our own uh, unique things we're facing, unique questions. Would you work this out through your Holy Spirit, I pray? Would you put your finger on those things and would you call us to deeper faith and trust knowing that you will come through every time? We trust you with all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.